Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is our part two of a two-part series on the weird, weird rise and, uh, spoiler alert, fall of the Flea Circus. Uh, hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Noel. Uh, what, what, what is it? How, what, what, flea, fleas on, fleas on trapeze. Tiny fleas. No, you'll let you do it, Gabe, because Gabe's still here. Yeah. We fleas. We fleas. We fleas yeah, there you go. on flying trapeze. <laughs> we three that's... fleas of Bethlehem. Ah, uh, that's a good one. It's a good tongue twister. Uh, but no, it's true. We're back with fleas. Um, and we should just dive right into it because I'm sure a lot of you were slightly irritated that we left you with such a cliffhanger where you're asking yourself, how do they do it? How? Mm. how? It doesn't make any sense. They're fleas. I know that these uh, human fleas are a little, a few millimeters bigger than, um, you know, than the traditional dog or cat fleas, but still. These are basically microscopic creatures. Uh, we talked a lot about watchmaking, which uh, requires the use of t- specialized tools to handle microscopic, or maybe not microscopic, but very small pieces. So, Gabe, we got to ask you, what's the deal? How, how is the magic made? And before we get to that, we have to say that a lot of those questions and complaints came from our very own super producer, Casey Pegram. That's true. He was livid. He is so mad at you, Gabe. He, he hit me. <laughs> He's got a lot of a lot of thoughts about flea circuses, and uh, yeah. Well, we'll try to do him proud on this one. I'm gonna I'm gonna clue you guys in because uh, there's actually. I mean, it is a, a guarded industry. Let's say there is. Uh, you guys remember that show, uh, Breaking the Magician's Code, where that guy in the mask was yeah. like, "These are how the tricks are done." We're mm-hmm. s- we're still waiting on the flea circus version of that. It hasn't happened yet, or. You know, maybe it did and nobody noticed. I don't know. But um, there are, you know, some tricks of the trade that we, that we know about or or alleged tricks, at least. Um, for example, one of the stories that these uh, these flea ringmasters often tell, and apparently, by the way, they're called professors, usually. Um, if you're oh, yeah, yeah. a flea trainer, you're a professor. So uh, one story that these professors like to share is that after they trap these fleas, they tame them by keeping them in a shallow glass case with a lid on it. And of course, the fleas jump up and bump their heads on the shallow case. And after a few days, supposedly, they're not jumping so much anymore, not because they're dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're just a little more docile and they, they've learned how high... Uh, the roof is of their enclosure. And so they don't jump as high anymore because they don't want to hit their heads. So their spirits are broken. 
Pretty yeah, I was much. about to say they've essentially stripped them of their yeah. will to to live. Correct. But, yeah, you know, they're brain yeah. dead. They can barely move. Um, and uh, no, they're actually just incredibly well trained. Right. That's what they claim, at least. I mean, yeah, that's you know probably just part of the act explaining that. But uh, they will swear to it. That's how they get the fleas to um, uh, to be. That's how they tame them and how they keep them from jumping out of the circus ring or whatever. They only jump yay high because they've been conditioned to do so. Um, I mean, if they jump at their full capacity, you're out of flea. You don't know where they could go. They could be out in the audience, yep. jump onto a person. I mean, that's mm. what they, that's why they hop, right? Because they hop from host to host. Can't have that, yeah. But, no, no. I mean, you know, there are those among us who would argue that, you know, these guys are kind of full of it. Uh, fleas don't have the capacity for learning. Um, but one thing that is true is that some fleas are better athletes than others, right? They can jump higher or, you know, just move at a faster clip. And so, you know, maybe maybe you have 10 fleas and there's only one that's kind of nimble and athletic enough, you know, for the circus life. And so mm. flea trainers will keep a close eye on, on you know, a potential crop of fleas and oh. they will kind of earmark the guys with potential, the ones that are uh, doing the most jumping, you know, fit for the circus life. And uh, those become the star of the shows, the ones that can... Flea scouts. Yeah, you got, <laughs> you got to have it. There are is, is there like a minor league for fleas? Are there like... Oh, it's all the big leagues. It's all the big leagues. With flea okay. circus. <laughs> I just, I love that as a career description. What do you do? Actually, I am the uh, most successful uh, flea scout in the southeast region of northwest Ohio. It's a big claim to fame, yeah. Big dreams. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. Okay, but, but it is true. It makes sense that not every, every flea could be the equivalent, uh, the flea version of an Usain Bolt, because not every human is, right? They're always exceptionally adept living organisms. Um, did they how 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 did they determine this though like how, were they just able to notice what appeared to be one flea consistently hopping higher or faster more often than the others like for me the biggest difficulty and again i'm i am not a professor in this regard but for me the biggest difficulty would be uh differentiating one flea from the next right yeah you would think so but uh i again you know, the secrets have not all been revealed. Um, <laughs> we don't mm. know how they're keeping track of these guys. Maybe they're marking them, you know, color-coded fleas. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just like, uh, you know, a, a mother with her with her brood. You know, she knows them each by uh, by touch, by sight. By personality. <laughs> by that personality. Is, that is so Jerome. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Classic Jeffrey. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, uh, you know, and it's really just so, okay, these guys aren't, trained, right? These fleas, they're just doing what comes naturally. They're jumping. They're jumping around. Um, they're looking for something to land on and feed on. And so the, the trick part, the entertainment part, comes in what you harness it to, right? It's putting on these little collars and, and uh, you know, yoking them to chariots or putting little tiny instruments in their hands um, and watching them kind of fiddle away at them. Um, the audience kind of supplies the rest. The fleas are just jumping around, but because they're tied to these little contraptions, the audience reads it as a trick, right? It's not a flea just kind of mindlessly jumping. He's part of a chariot race. He's racing mm -hmm. the other fleas mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, that's the illusion that they're selling. And again, apparently it worked because this has been an act for hundreds of years. Um, we do know, again, uh, you know, some tricks of the trade, like, uh, for instance, the flea music band that we talked about earlier. Um, I do love a good music band, <laughs> right? I have to say. Well, you're mm -hmm. not alone in that. Um, yeah. Uh, Bertolotto, you know, he's the one that kind of pioneered that. Um, he blew London away with his, his flea music band. Um, and other people ran with the idea, but prepare to think less of him for doing that trick because how he actually did it was the fleas mm. were glued to the base of the flea circus. And then the ins the instruments were glued to their mandibles. And so when you heat the base up, 
the fleas tried to escape. They were trying to get yeah. away. But again, the yeah. audience is reading this as them playing, twiddling, and playing the instruments. Pay no mind to that smell of cooking fleas, you know? <laughs> right. uh, I mean, exactly. They're so small, it probably wouldn't smell like much. But yeah, they're essentially like cooking alive and, and trying to save themselves in there. Yeah, that's it's essentially, this is yeah, this is animal cruelty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you could argue that this is animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know... Insects are very small. We don't usually think of it in that terms. People swat a fly without thinking twice about it. But this is, yeah, altogether different, right? You're making tiny contraptions specifically to yoke them into service and then kind of torturing them for people's entertainment. And it's on such yeah, a small yeah. scale that you just don't really notice that that's what's happening. Yeah, it's still, it's still in principle the same thing because just eliminating a flea is different from, you know, torturing it in a very yeah. weird way. It's kind of like beer For money. <laughs> bear baiting. Yeah. It's also like, it's like a, a much more elaborate form of that little psychopath kid that pulled the wings off of flies for fun. Exactly. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. So, you know, some people think that um, this form of entertainment, these flea circuses, that they actually declined you know, in the 20th century because of concerns over, you know, animal cruelty and kind of the welfare of these fleas. That's not really the case. Uh, There are some groups out there who definitely felt that this was wrong and still do. Um, But really what happened was the fleas got harder to find. Uh, It was harder to source them. And it was difficult to train them, uh, such as it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had to keep replacing them and stuff like that. Things would go wrong. Sometimes fleas would drop dead mid-performance. Um, and so as technology progressed, you know, some of these enterprising professors found an easier way of doing this. And that was the John Hammond route, the mechanical route. They turned to uh, mechanical illusions. They had uh, magnets and electrical contraptions that would kind of, um, again, trick the audience into thinking that these objects were being moved and manipulated by fleas when in reality it was, you know, a gear system. 
Yeah. So this to me is is pretty clever. First off, it's it's kinder to the the fleas involved. And even if they're not my type of animal, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be alive, right? But they uh it's kinder, but also it seems like it's a very easy con to pull, is it not? I mean, you would you would have these contraptions, you could make them elaborate, especially if they're just um automations or, or mechanisms of their own and people if they're a certain distance away would just assume a flea is there right oh yeah absolutely once again referring to jurassic park that's uh that's what john hammond says is the little the little kids would see it and be like oh i can see the fleas mommy do you see the fleas and uh yeah i mean the audience is is willing to believe i think so you don't really have to torture uh turns out you don't have to torture 400 plus bugs every night well um, it's, it's 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 charming and it's a thing we do all the time i mean there's no such thing as superheroes you know there's mm-hmm. like it's all suspension of disbelief so how is this any different it's it's a show uh i would argue it's not necessarily an overt form of like deception uh, it's sort of part of the the whole deal, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. People want to believe, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And, but again, you know, the flea circus did not, uh, did not go into decline specifically because of these animal concerns. It was actually largely because hygiene improved so much. Um, By the time you get to the 20th century, we have stuff Mm. like vacuum cleaners and, you know, air filters in our houses and, um, you know, a lot of cleaning agents and stuff. So the fleas pretty much just packed their bags and and hit the road. It was too clean for them. Uh, And so human fleas, which, again, were the ones being used in these circus acts um, because they were bigger and better jumpers, they just got scarcer and scarcer until the mechanical kind of flea circus that we're talking about, the fleeless flea circus, became the norm. Oh, we should point out there was a there was a kind of, I would say, an increasingly desperate band aid or transitional phase uh, that that you hipped us to, where uh, some circuses said, "Well, these fleas are dead, but we'll we'll just keep using them." <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's probably when they were getting harder to find, and it was like, or you know, oh, I don't feel like training another crop all over again, putting them in a <laughs> yeah. the shallow case. Let's skip that. And uh, yeah, so they would just use the dead fleas again and again. They would dress them up in their little costumes and just glue them down to, uh, you know, wherever they needed to be. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of, uh, like you said, the the transitional phase. You would see that in, in live flea circuses where really it was, you know, a lot of dead fleas mixed in there. And you would also see it in the mechanical ones where everything was operating on gears and, and pulleys and that kind of thing. But then you had... You know, for the, for the kids who weren't willing to bring their imaginations to it, I guess, there were, you know, dead ones actually glued to these surfaces. Um, so fleas were still involved in the mechanical ones, but, you know, not in the traditional live sense. Oh, weird. And and people still enjoyed it? People still liked the show? There weren't protesters out there saying, you know, this is a false flea circus, FFC. No, F-F-C. of course there were, but... Uh, they, they were ignored, rightly so. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you know, flea circuses are actually still popular. Um, it's, you know, it ain't what it used to be, but uh, depending on where you live, you can actually still find uh, a modern-day flea circus of both varieties, uh, mechanical ones, but also uh, live ones, too. Um, for example, really? there, there's one of the most famous and long-running ones is uh, at this Oktoberfest celebration in Munich. That still goes on every year, um, and there's a bunch in the U.S. too. So, is, is the Munich one real or mechanical? It's real. Oh wow! Yeah. So, are they still hot gluing little flea boys down to to platforms and heating them up and making them flail? Most likely. <laughs> okay, that's All weird because right. Germany is a little more progressive in the field of animal rights in comparison to a lot of other places, right? I think it was was it Germany where there were legal cases. Or there were cases going to court arguing that some uh, non-human animals be granted legal personhood? Like, uh, yeah. So it seems like... I do believe you're correct, sir. It seems like that would be a weird country to, to continue it. But then again, maybe they're just, they're just saying, well, fleas are, fleas are fleas. Fleas are insects to us. Uh, it, is, it, it is fascinating, though, that they're still, they're still using the living fleas. I guess they want to be legit. Um, 
I, there's one detail you had, Gabe, that really stood out to me, and I don't know if it stood out for you as well, Noel, which is that so uh, a great proportion of flea trainers historically had backgrounds in, you know, theatrical work or in stage mm. performance. So is this just maybe like a thing where a lot of magicians, especially ones with long careers, go on to specialize in something, right? Like up-close mm -hmm. magic, card magic, grand Copperfield-esque illusions, or so on. Is is a flea circus sort of a um, a more uh, specified discipline within the world of stage magic? Would you say it's happening? Yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, like you said, a lot of stage magicians kind of pivoted into uh, being a flea circus professor. Um, and again, like we've been talking about, there's a pretty long history of uh, miniatures um, and showmanship, you know, the, the entertainment business kind of going hand in hand. Like um, one thing I read that I always thought was interesting was Walt Disney was a huge fan of miniatures. And again, it was from um, touring Europe and finding, you know, the remnants from these miniature houses that we talked about earlier and just kind of falling in love with the detail and the craftsmanship of it. And so before he hit on the idea of doing Disneyland, he had the idea for something called Disneylandia which was going to be um, detailed models, little miniatures of the Wild West and, um, you know, different eras in history. He was going to pack these things onto a train car and drive it around the country and have people come and see Disneylandia. Um, and that's kind of the idea at the heart of it. Um, it's just building these little worlds. Well, we'll check this out. You, you may already know this, um, but uh, at the Disney Family Museum uh, in San Francisco, uh, which is not uh, run by the Disney Corporation, it's run by the Walt Disney Family Trust, uh, they have all of these, like, scale models of mm -hmm. uh, Tomorrowland and of all of the things that became Disneyland. Yep. Um, and they're beautiful and intricate and exactly like what you're describing. So, obviously, he took that idea and ran with it and then, you know, built, like, the real thing. But that was my favorite part of the whole... I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, you can also see the, the kinds of things they show at this museum are the kinds of things that would be off limits for the Disney company. Like they have a whole um, gallery of a lot of those war propaganda Disney uh, cartoons oh, yeah. and like posters and stuff like in the Fuhrer's face, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Donald Duck one, um, which, you know, they don't really, I don't think you can get those on Disney. Yeah, Plus, they don't get much, uh, not much play these days. But yeah, yeah no, I've, I've been to that museum as well. And they, they do have um, a lot of his personal collection of miniatures there, you know, under glass. You can see he's got like a whole pantry of all these tiny, tiny canned goods and, <laughs> and little mm. boxes and stuff and lots of, uh, you know, tiny spoons. So he fell in love with it. Uh, there's something about it that just appeals to showmen, um, just like, again, John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Um, mm -hmm. It's, uh, there, there's something about it. So I actually, I did have a thesis, actually, which is that Ooh. Jurassic Park is the history of flea circuses in reverse. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. Okay. 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 Uh, Expound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, original flea circus owners, they became, you know, over time, very well versed in the difficulties of trying to control a living system. Mm-hmm. You know, they had trouble sourcing the fleas. They had trouble training them. The performers had short lifespans. They had to be replaced, etc. Mm -hmm. So eventually, again, like we were talking about, when the technology allowed, they moved to a mechanical system. Uh, okay. Fleeless circuses that relied on gears, and they were much more reliable, much less messy, and much easier to control. But John Hammond, he got into the flea business during that second era, the mechanical run of flea mm -hmm. circuses. So he was always pining for the real thing to go back to that time he didn't have, the living system, which he saw as a step up because it was more real, right? I just wanted to make something real. Exactly. Something they could see yeah. and touch. Yeah. And, and, touch. and, and then uh, there's, there's some... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who our Goldblum is in here. Who's the guy who's like, <laughs> fleas uh, find a way. Yeah. Mm. They do. They find a way. It's by jumping. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you know, instead of going back to that old kind of flea circus and, and you know, learning his lesson that way, he opted for the dinosaur circus instead. <laughs> and, mm. you know, chaos ensued. But I think that's a lesson that we see kind of in the real world all the time of that trying to control 
you know, a living system as if it were a mechanical one. Um, mm-hmm. And it breaks down all the time, like with um, man-made dams and levees or those programs where they try to, you know, drive out all the carnivores and eliminate them. And Fracking. then you're over. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't this- work. There's a mm-hmm. there's a great point there because what we're seeing is that the um, further technology evolves, the more closely it mimics pre-existing natural processes or uh, natural mechanisms. And then eventually, you know, the idea, if we want to get very sci-fi about it, is mm-hmm. that the most highly evolved forms of technology, quote-unquote, are themselves um, indistinguishable from what appears to be the natural world. Uh, right. Which is which is a neat thing to think about, and thank you for classing up the episode with this with this <laughs> part, Gabe. Uh, but I do, I do want to say there's there is one piece of history I found so fascinating, and I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't hit it. Uh, the idea of acknowledging fleas in an entertaining way, and not just in like a gloom and doom, these guys spread the plague kind of way. You found this fantastic. Uh, this fantastic little tidbit about Mesoamerica. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Uh, So one example that cropped up in the early 19th century, so this was around the same time that flea circuses were kind of really hitting their stride in Europe, uh, is this form of Mexican folk art called pulgas vestidas, which literally means dressed fleas. And this was exactly what it sounds like. People would take dead fleas and dress them up in little outfits and they would accessorize them too. They'd put on, you know, shoes and hats and belts, like whatever you could think of. And then they would mount the fleas and pose them to make these little scenes uh, inside of these tiny shadow boxes. They were like the size of a dime. And, you know, sometimes you'd see an entire mariachi band crammed into one of these things, like playing their tiny little instruments or uh, (laughs) maybe a a pair of fleas dressed like a bride and groom at the altar. That was a really popular one. Uh, So all kinds of stuff. This is kind of like some serial killer stuff right here. I'm picturing, yeah. A a little bit. I don't know. It's also simultaneously (laughs) adorable and kind of goes back into that like whole like obsession with miniaturization that we were talking about. It feels like that's Mm -hmm. the impulse here is like, ooh, let's dress Mm -hmm. up these cute little tiny dead things. Um, But it's interesting because I'm looking at it now and it seems like nobody's quite sure where this started. I mean, I think, again, my conjecture might might be that it was just like the nature of like, look, look at these little things. Let's make them cute. But there is a theory uh, uh, that it began in Mexican convents. Um, I guess possibly, you know, like a lot of things start with bored nuns uh, when they go a little stir crazy. I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's where QAnon started. Everybody knows that. Um, and, you know, started, let's dress up the fleas. Uh, so then eventually villagers, you know, got hip to the idea. And when they realized that the shadow boxes actually made great souvenirs, uh, they started selling them to tourists. So I guess uh, it seems like they were a massive hit too because there are a ton of examples out there, right? Oh, yeah. These, these things were everywhere. Everybody knew about them. Uh, I actually found this great quote from the Mexican writer Octavio Paz. Uh, In the 1920s, he weighed in on the art of dressing fleas. That's how big it was. He called it, quote, a difficult art, exquisite and useless. So Paz. That's so Paz. Classic. (laughs) Classic Paz. Always, yeah, always, always quick with the hot take. But, but, but right. So it's, it's uh, not only... Is it exquisite and useless, but also uh, quite pricey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I uh, checked while I was, you know, lo- looking into this, and the most recent dressed fleas to sell on eBay. Uh, this was an auction just about a month ago. It was a bride and groom set, and it sold for nine hundred dollars U.S. plus uh, U.S. nine hundred U.S. Mm, wow. This was uh, the auction was in Arizona. And, uh, you know, plus 825 shipping. Too, so. Nope, the bridge too far. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We'll, we'll <laughs> wait, wait but, but are these like historical artifacts or are these modern reenactments mm. of these older, uh, you he, know? Uh, yeah. He was claiming that this is, uh, this was an original. I guess it's kind of a lost art now. So most got of them it, are. Not it, a lot it, of people are it. still doing this. Got it. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You know, this is, this is um, as you said earlier, both fascinating and pretty creepy. I got some Tim Burton vibes off this, but I, I got to be honest. I didn't know there were two different examples. I was thinking of a different kind of Mesoamerican flea art. Uh, it, Gabe, you found a sculpted flea that predates the concept of flea circuses entirely. Like, I think it's um, it, it was created by Aztec civilization. C- could you tell us the story about that one? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry about, sorry about that. Uh, you know, Mesoamerica was flush with uh, flea art, so it's hard to keep track sometimes. But uh, yeah, that's right. The Aztecs produced this uh, massive collection of intricate sculptures back in the 1500s. A lot of them portray like gods and goddesses, but there's some sacred objects too, like uh, these containers that were used in ceremonies and musical instruments. Strangely enough, like plants and vegetables are also represented in this collection. There's this, uh, there's some sculptures of grains of wheat, and there's also this foot long green stone pumpkin that kind of had my eye on. But uh, there's uh, also this whole section dedicated to animals, so like a sculpture bestiary with snakes, dogs, jaguars, turkeys, all kinds of stuff. Pretty much any animal they were coming into contact with, and that includes this enormous stone flea. And what's most impressive about it to me is the artist sculpted it to be hundreds of times the size of a real flea. It's like a foot tall. So you get all these details and features that would be really hard to see, you know, with the naked eye. Like, I don't really know how he pulled it off without a magnifying glass or microscope or anything like that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And this would have predated, like, the, you know, the lens, right? I mean, they wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. anything like that, right? Yeah, Yeah. at least in this part of the world, I would think, yeah. It's fascinating, though, because, like, back in part one, um, when we were kind of discussing like the, the the fleas and their little parts and how they were posed with things, I'm like, how does a flea hold a tiny mariachi guitar and its little claws? I looked up some like um, imagery of like electron microscopes blowing up fleas, and they are just the most bizarro alien looking little guys oh, yeah. ever. I mean, they have these weird little mandibles, and it's very clear that, like, uh, for a lot of science fiction, you know, um, practical effects and, you know, um, imagery and and film, uh, clearly insects are are a huge influence, and fleas in particular. There's something very, you know, alien about the the way these things look. They're so specifically evolved, you know? Exactly, exactly. They can't 
do the things that we would consider routine, routine activities like walking, right? right. I, um, Jumping and drinking blood. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what else is there? Man? What else do you need? That's a good point. So what, what do you think it was that, that, that made these sculptors so particularly fascinated with these things that they could barely see? I mean, even, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I don't have perfect eyesight, but I have pretty good eyesight. But even like squinting and looking up close at one of these, it wouldn't look nearly like it would through the electron microscope that I was talking about. What, what's, what, where, where's the fascination come from? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a strange pull. But, you know, the thing is, none of the subjects for these sculptures were chosen at random. Like, Every one of them says something about the concepts of Aztec religion. And the key belief of their society was that, you know, there were these certain gods, these creator gods who had sacrificed themselves in order to create humans and the world and, you know, everything in it. And so in order to sustain those gifts to kind of keep the universe going, the Aztecs believed that their god's sacrifice had to be, you know, renewed over and over again with human blood. So... Yeah, the result of this is, you know, a steady stream of ritual human sacrifice, which, you know, a lot of these sculptures do focus on that in gory detail. Like some of those uh, vessels I mentioned earlier, those are like blood and organ collection uh, tools for these uh, sacrifices. And, you know, that could also be why the flea is represented here, you know, in such detail as an Mm. animal that feeds on blood in order to sustain Mm. itself. It's, you know, it's possible the Aztecs like looked at this flea and saw it as kind of a little micro scale uh, embodiment of, you know, the system they saw in place, this like blood renewal thing. Something holy. Exactly. Yeah. At the very least uh, sacred, like, like like the way the, you know, Indians treat cows. And then we came along. (laughs) And then we came along. (laughs) Yeah. A lot less reverent. Making them dance and uh, yeah, attaching them to little toy chariots and stuff. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think the Aztecs would have been fans of flea circuses. Yeah, oh, or you like you know, that. electrifying them so that they like spaz out and pretend to play instruments. It wasn't electrifying; it was just heating them up mm-hmm. until they yeah. start to well, literally cook still. in place and kind of yeah. Even still, <laughs> well, not probably wouldn't have won nice us any treatments. points. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're we're low on flea points, uh, at least with the where the Aztecs are concerned. Yeah, I think I think you guys are right. Something tells me um, the people of that time would not have maybe been the hugest fans of flea circuses. But Gabe, uh, we're huge fans of hanging out with you. Thank you so much for taking us on this journey, not just for one part, but for two parts on the weird, weird history of the rise and fall of flea circuses. Yeah, likewise, guys. I've had a blast. Thanks for having me on. Hope to come back soon. But, you know, maybe we could just leave the blood contract thing out next time. I think no deal. We're all friends here. Sorry. Deal breaker. Sorry. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, Nolan and I had a meeting about this. We, we voted. Mandatory? Yeah. yeah. Majority rules, Gabe. But uh, just the same, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, two-parter and, and hipping us to the magical uh, and, and and somewhat disturbing world of flea circuses. And honestly, you took us even further than even that with the whole Mesoamerican angle. So huge thanks to you, my friend, researcher extraordinaire Gabe Luzier. Uh, and also huge thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Big, big thanks, of course, to the one and only super producer, Casey Pegram. Uh, big thanks as well to Alex Williams, who composed this slap and bop. And, uh, no, I guess we have to say it. Big thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. <laughs> no! You said, it, you said his name. It's time, gentlemen. You did this, Ben. You invited him. No, no, no. You both did this, gentlemen. For no, you said my name first. Oh, did and I? then Ben said my name second. And we all know that if I hear my name three times, I appear. Your, but since you mentioned so many other people's names, I just assumed mine was in there too. And so here I am. Wow. I feel like your accent's changed. It's gotten a little more uh, absurd. Well, you know, it's been a while. So yeah. I just thought I'd really turn it uh, up to 11. Okay. Okay. Uh, I gave. Guys, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, hey, Gabe, sorry. We should have mentioned this at the top. Um, this is a part of the show that we uh, we were kind of hoping you wouldn't have to see. But every so often, due to another contract signed in blood, mm. uh, we are bombed by uh, our own nemesis, 
uh, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quizster, who will not let the episode end unless we participate in a battle of wits. Yes, yes, it's very sad because one half of this equation is unarmed. Gabe, uh, you are now welcome to the most cringeworthy segment in all of podcasting. Yes, it's true. I shall present to all of you three scenarios, two of which are real and one I made up sees. And it is your job to figure out which of the three is the fake. As always, after I tell you all three scenarios, you will have three minutes to make your decision. And you are allowed to ask me questions, but you must first precede that with a phrase of my arbitrary choosing. Now, I understand you were speaking of flea circuses. No, yep. we're talking about flea circuses. Yes, <laughs> flea circuses. Well, I have chosen a very, very similar topic political assassinations. And so, before any question, you must proceed it with a quotation from Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins. And in case you don't know any, everybody's got the right to be happy works just fine. So if you have a question, you have to start with something from Assassins. Here are your three scenarios. Scenario number one. Paul III, Duke of Straubing, also known as Paul the Merciless, had a problem. He met an ill-fated end at the hands of an assassin in 1425. He had made many enemies, having previously served as bishop in Bavaria, and he ruled with an iron fist. He even warred against his own family in order to secure his position as duke. On a night in October 1425, an unidentified assassin, likely sent by his own sister, didn't just stab Paul to death. According to reports, Paul's body was practically drained of all blood and left hanging over the rail of his bedchamber's balcony, wearing only his chain of office. His passing was unmourned. Scenario 2. Swiss politician Jörg Jenetsch had a problem. He was many things. Protestant pastor, Roman Catholic, secret society leader, soldier torture supervisor, assistant axe murderer, duelist, and of course, prominent politician. He met his end in 1639 at the hands of a bear, or rather the paws of a man, or rather the hands of a man dressed like a bear who assassinated Georgie with an axe, as it said. Whether Janich was axed a question or some other weapon was used, he was really most sincerely dead after the whole thing. Scenario a three. Yugoslavian statesman Josip Broz Tito had a problem, and that problem was Joseph Stalin. Stalin's head of state security planned out an ambitious assassination on Tito. The plan was to employ a Soviet agent to pose as a diplomat from Costa Rica. The agent would smuggle in lethal bacteria into the presence of Tito, infecting him and everyone else in the area. But before said plan could be set in motion, Stalin himself shuffled off this mortal coil in 1953. Tito would die in 1980, just a few days shy of his 88th birthday. A start the clock. Okay, I am running to the grandfather clock. Give me just one second. You mean that really big watch in the corner? Wow. What's you with the back? You, you, you push and you push. <laughs> push you, oh. you just insist, Gabe. <laughs> um, I'm going to be honest, you guys. The best thing I can say is I have a 30% chance of randomly guessing the correct thing here. It's yeah. true. Same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The thing about Jonathan is, uh, or the quizster, his quizness, is that he uh, he puts a lot of effort into these. Uh, he he really makes them pretty tricky to to just uh, get it outright. Uh, gosh, what was the name of uh, Assassin the Musical? <laughs> that was pathetic, Noel. You get to ask half a question. Uh, what was the guy's name? The second name? The, the oh, Jorg B- Bjorg, Bjorg Schmormans. Yes. it sounds like a, it sounds like a made up. It's a, a J O with an umlaut because I love uh, a good umlaut. 
Yeah, see, see that's convincing. He loves, a, he loves a good umlaut. I feel like that's a name that, that came from the depths of the hellish maw that is the Quister's mind. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good argument with the name. That does sound a little too fun, written by perhaps someone with a, uh, a deep love of absurd names. Mm-hmm. But then there's that guy who was the axe murderer. Like, what was that all about? He was like in just- a bear suit, but he used an axe. It's the same guy. Oh, right. Yeah, that's still the second one, huh? <laughs> you know, I was paying the most attention to the first one, so I think that one was it. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think oh, the real one. Yeah, that was the real one. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The real one. I, I I felt pretty pretty real about the first one. And John, I just have to point this out. Nobody has heard of Assassin the Musical by Stephen L. Sondheim. If it's not into Neil the Neil Patrick Harris knows all about it. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh... Why did you do it, Johnny? Very well done, Mr. Bolin. What is your question? What is the third scenario? What's going on? These get longer and longer. I am lost. (laughs) Well, you keep pointing out that if I spend too much time on one, that's clearly the the one that I made up. So I made all of them long. (laughs) That's what you get, Mr. Bolin. You pointed out your your way of figuring out my tricks. Uh, That was uh, about about, uh, uh, Josep Broz Tito, who was uh, Joseph Stalin attempted to assassinate Tito multiple times, actually, but one of the plans was to smuggle in a form of lethal bacteria to infect him. Uh, the, The Soviet agent in charge of doing this was not told that that was what he would be doing, only that he would be bringing in something perhaps poisonous into Tito's presence. Okay. The way you're talking about that sounds like the way someone talks about something they've researched. So I think mm-hmm. that one's probably real. Although the name, what is it? Yosef Broz? Yosef Broz Tito. He was a statesman in Yugoslavia. Him, do you think people called him Brosef for Definitely. fun? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, and how could you not? How many minutes yeah. are left on that three minutes? <laughs> oh, we're out of time. No. You've got a great sense of time. I guess um, we got to lock in one. I, uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go with Gabe's gut. Yeah. I'm going to say number three feels true. Yeah. As I was well. swayed oh. by, by that. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Gabe's gut was one. Three, the description. Yes. With you. Sorry. He had Thank a lot you. of details for that one. A lot so, of details. So which of the three are you saying is the one I made up? Because right now you're saying. One is real, three is real. I don't know which one you're saying I made oh, up. I think no, no. we say two is fake. Two is fake. Uh, wait, fake no, wait, wait, wait. Wait, no. two of them are real? No. Yes. Two, two are real, one's fake. Which one's <laughs> the yes. fake one? The bear one. The bear one. All right. Well, Gabe, the honors go to you. Uh, no, you really want, Do you really want to be responsible for besmirching our sterling record? I think we're ahead right now. We're ahead by one. Uh, this is going to even huh. us out if we lose... All right, but that's our answer. You'll be dead to us. Well, (laughs) Gabe, Gabe, you're welcome on the show anytime. Because that was was a real thing that happened, was Jorg Yenich. He he really was a Swiss (laughs) politician. He really was murdered. The reason the man was dressed as a bear was uh, he was murdered on Carnival of all Uh, times. uh. And uh, yes, it's said that uh, he was murdered by an axe, although that that part is perhaps the least well-documented, but he was certainly killed by someone dressed as a bear. So this Uh, one's untrue also. That one is absolutely true. The one that is untrue (laughs) is Paul III, Duke of Straubing. There never was such a person. Mm, Is there a place called Straubing? Yes, there is. It's next to Bavaria. Oh, God, good. Okay. (laughs) But but there was no no Paul III who who was stabbed to death and left drained of blood and hanging over his balcony a railing wearing nothing but his chain of office. That was completely made up, Cease. Well, well done. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely exhausted. That's egg on my face, yeah. Yeah, it's egg on all of our faces. We, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we're in this together. But uh, you should do an episode about Yanich, seriously, because this fellow was, you read his biography and his list of accomplishments. It is crazy. That well, sounds like gotta it. have. Yeah, we've got to have you on uh, for that one, man, uh, in maybe your alter ego. And I know we've built a really weird mythos here because we refer to you by your government name and your alter ego. Oh, well, Well, if you want to see. I I agree. I will do it, but only if the quizster can be on at the end of that episode. (laughs) Why not? We'll do a Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde vibe. 
Well, uh, we are tied, folks. Uh, so we are going into our next bout with the Quizster, uh, with everything on the line. As you know, this is a very high-stakes pursuit we have here. Uh, Jonathan, well played. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, we should have known Paul is a weird Paul is a weird name, right? For a uh, yeah. like a totally made official up. in that time. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> I do. I do have a no distinct, such thing as uh, Paul. No, there's no, 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 there's no Pauls, except for super producer Paul Deccant, Mission Control uh, of uh, of stuff they don't want you to know fame. He's the only Paul that matters. Uh, I will say, uh, uh, Strickland, that when you said Duke of Straub, I thought you were going to say Duke of Strawberry, which sounds a lot more appealing than that story. I agreed, 100%. <laughs> well, we've all got a lot to learn from history, I think is our takeaway here. Uh, if you would like to share some stories about your own experiences with weird, uh, oh God, where do we go, guys? Weird flea stories? Um, flea facts? Any, any interesting-related story would be good. Any of that, you can find us on the internets aplenty. We like to recommend our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians, but you can also find us as individuals online. That is correct. You can find me on Instagram where I am at how now Noel Brown. Ben, how about you, my friend? Yes, folks, you can find me at Ben Bolin, B-O-W-L-I-N on Instagram. You can also find me on Twitter at Ben Bolin H-S-W. Join the adventures. Uh, I, I, I'm getting into some weird stuff lately. No spoilers. Uh, Gabe, what about you? Well, if people were so inclined, they could go to a number of different Transformers message boards and track me down under the pseudonym Magic Dishwasher. And that is all I am comfortable revealing. So what you're saying is you're a giant nerd. Correct. <laughs> and and the way we go, uh, you know, it's fair. Fair is fair. I hope we don't regret this. But Jonathan, where can people find you if they are so inclined? On a chilly November morn, you may find me lurking down that alley you never look directly at. I'm there. I'm waiting. Yikes. He's also got a show called Tech Stuff. Uh, <laughs> you can find him on Twitter. <laughs> yes, you can subscribe to Tech Stuff on all your favorite podcatching apps, or you could just go down that alley. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm going to change my answer to, to what he said. <laughs> no, it's too late. It's ah. too late. We're locked in. Yeah, blood oath. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 